Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today's guest is Michael Vigorito. Before we get to our conversation, I'd like to thank our friends at Celebrity Cruises who helped make today's episode possible. Our travel editor went on a trip that redefined for us what cruising could be like. It was with Celebrity Cruises, which is a modern luxury travel brand that has proven to be a very cool company to work with. So much so that we just announced a major partnership with them called Goop at Sea. This is a wellness experience for an intimate group that will be part of an 11-day trip this August on the Celebrity Apex, which travels from Spain to France to the Italian Riviera. On day five of the cruise, I'll be sitting down with Gwyneth and asking her lots of questions about her personal wellness journey. A few very talented practitioners will lead guests through workshops for the mind, body, and soul, and I'll close the day with a final conversation. There's a lot more going on with Celebrity Cruises and Goop at Sea, so if you're interested in learning more and checking out tickets, head to celebritycruises.com slash goop at sea. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Michael Vigorito is a sex therapist and author. He developed a sexual health assessment and treatment protocol along with Douglas Braun Harvey, which was published in Treating Out-of-Control Sexual Behavior. So today, we're talking about sex, specifically sex addiction and why we need to move away from that label, which he thinks stops our critical thinking, causes shame, enacts defense mechanisms, and ultimately doesn't help either partner. Instead, he advocates for a different kind of ethical framework for clients and clinicians, in our conversation, we talk about the difference between sex drive and problematic sexual behavior, and we get into the root causes of both. Vigorito believes the most important thing when it comes to sex is to stop immediately labeling our sexual behaviors and to get curious instead. Your behavior may have been a problematic but a solution to prevent your erotic orientation from being completely split off or completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. And that's because primarily all of the shame that you have around it. So we can decouple that shame from your sexuality. We can hopefully now integrate it into your lifestyle, into your relationships. Okay, let's get to my chat with Michael Vigorito. I think it's really interesting that you sort of work on something that's – I know the idea of sex addiction, is it real, is it not, is something that's part of the conversation about sex, particularly when it relates to infidelity or – or these ideas. I've certainly had this experience in my own friend group where the excuse has been, or I don't even want to say it's an excuse because sure. it's probably, it's very valid, but that mm -hmm. it's some sort of addiction or compulsory behavior. And, and it's one of the addictions that seems obviously very personal, right? Because mm -hmm. it involves two people mm -hmm. um, in a way that other addictions are more isolated or alienating or damaging as well, mm -hmm. but there's not this covenant that's been broken as mm -hmm. part of it. So I know you define it differently. Correct. So can you take us through sort of what that looks like and, mm -hmm. and how you talk about it and how you think about it? Sure. Well, I always like to start with uh, understanding the function of that phrase, sex addiction, right? As a therapist, I want to make certain that clients are being curious about their behavior. So if we just start out calling it sex addiction, sometimes I think the clients and the 
the relationship that they're involved with, they stop thinking critically about what's going on and they stop looking at the function of the behavior. Mm -hmm. So I always like to invite my clients and other therapists to just take a step back and let's understand what is it that they're trying to say when they say, I am a sex addict or I feel sexually compulsive. So how I look at it is people are using this phrase, sexual addiction, to communicate that they feel out of control with their sexual behaviors, thoughts, or urges. And that's a more subjective experience. And so I want to understand what does that mean to them. Mm -hmm. So if I'm coming at this saying, oh, you're a sex addict, now let's treat this addiction, I've lost that curiosity to understand what was this a solution to? There was a bind that you were experiencing, and why was this the answer to that bind, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, no, and I think I think it's helpful even in the context of all addiction, right? Because I mm -hmm. think the very nature of it and our sort of not full understanding of it, disease, genetics, chemical dependency, whatever it may be, that often it's sort of this thing, this this lurking designation where there you lose control to it, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's Whereas in my experience, it's it's obviously it's much more complicated than mm -hmm. that, right? And I think what you suggest, like what's driving it, like what is what are, what hole are you filling, or mm -hmm. what need are you trying to satisfy, or what is that? I think that's a much more healthy conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, mean, I mentioned something earlier about like how do we think critically about this issue, right? right? So when we call something a sex addiction. We are also using this metaphor. We're taking it from substance addiction and applying that to sexuality. And that's where some of that metaphor can break down because it's not really supported by the research. Mm -hmm. And what's important about drug addiction is like you're taking this, this we call it an exogenous substance, something that's outside of the body repeatedly. And that, that begins to shift the formula for what is rational for the client because they start to create these internal drug cravings and they create this, this impulse to move toward that drug, mm -hmm. right? It's not the same when we're talking about sex, right? We already have a sex drive. We have something that moves us in that direction. And a lot of times people are kind of zeroing in around sexual media or pornography and they're trying to say, well, pornography creates that same type of drug craving that's going to move us toward that sexual media. Mm -hmm. But again, the research doesn't support that that typically happens. So how do we then separate out uh, what we're trying to understand as someone's sex drive versus this kind of uh, problematic sexual behavior? And when they say, I'm a sex addict or I'm sexually compulsive, sometimes they're overly pathologizing their own sex drive. Mm. So I'm trying to separate out and normalize, right, you have this, this drive that moves you towards this behavior that's pleasurable, that's fun, that, that creates a sense of vitality in life, right? And try to understand it from a, a more of an ethical perspective. Like how do we align your behavior within your values, within your commitments that you've made either to yourself or in your relationships? And again, that phrase sex addiction is trying to say that this sexual media has kind of shifted and created this drug craving, and that's changing your decision-making. And I was right. like, no, no, no. This is uh, involving your own sex drive and some of the choices that you've been making, what you find pleasurable, and let's understand how you relate to that. Because a lot of times it's that we call this moral incongruence. I've got these judgments and values about what I'm doing, about what I enjoy sexually, it can create a lot of shame, and that mm -hmm. creates the secrecy. So you start to see these shame defenses that are similar to some of the defenses that you'll see in drug and alcohol addiction, but it's still the function is different. Yeah. So again, I'm just trying to protect the space uh, so we can get curious about the behaviors that they're engaging in. Right. And you you mentioned the word normalize, and I think so much of this must also come out of a conversation about what's normal. Mm -hmm. and you also mentioned you know, shame, which is – it's easy to conflate sexual pleasure and shame, particularly for women. And mm -hmm. I know you treat men in part because mm -hmm. it is so loaded for women, which we should mm -hmm. talk about at, at some point in this conversation. We'll put that in the parking okay. lot. But I think because, at least within women, so I can only speak from my experience, there's so little conversation about it. And there is so much it's shame. I think we all collectively struggle to understand what is normal? Mm -hmm. What's even the rate? Like, how, what's the normal rate at which people who are married for a long time, like, what's normal in terms of how often they have sex or are mm -hmm. intimate? Like, there's no 
And maybe there shouldn't be, but there's no sort of baseline understanding of like what what is a normal sex drive and what are normal mm-hmm. impulses and what is aberrant behavior and maybe there's no such thing. So like how within the context of men, like how do you start to unpack that? That is such a great question. I, mean, I think people in the, in the heart of what they come to, to therapy for sometimes just just to validate, I, am I normal? Is this is this okay? Yeah. Right? So I want to, again, take a step back and get curious even just about that question and think about how do we want to answer that, right? And I think there's two ways. One way is we just have what we call an act-centered value system where these sex acts are good, these sex acts are bad, these sex acts are healthy, these sex acts are unhealthy. And I'm trying to move people away from that and more toward an ethical framework where mm-hmm. we have a set of sexual health principles that are grounded in a consensus around sexual health from the World Health Organization, the Pan-American Health Organization, to have a way for clients and therapists to think critically about why am I trying to change this behavior? Why am I intervening here, right? So it's not saying this one sex act is good because without context, we can't answer that question, right? Like, for instance, if I put my hand on your shoulder, I have no idea if that's good or bad, right? But if it was a consensual touch, then we're like, oh, that's likely it's an okay thing. If it was a non-consensual touch, we want to move away from that, right? So you need to understand the context of the behavior before we can have that question around, is this okay? Is this normal? Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I try to shift away from that, that dichotomy of good sex, bad sex, healthy sex, unhealthy sex, to more toward an ethical framework for, for both clients and clinicians to think critically about this behavior within the context and where it's happening. So is it safe? Is it consensual? Is it breaking covenants or disturbing mm-hmm. this person's important relationships? Well, I can go through them. Yeah. So it's uh, is it consensual? Is it non-exploitative, right? So is someone leveraging power and control to have sexual access to someone or have sexual gratification? It's It corrodes someone's ability to consent, right? The Me Too movement is this reckoning around mm-hmm. sexual exploitation. Is it protected against STIs and unintended pregnancies? And then we have other ones that are a little more – can be a little more gray. And that's really where I spend a lot of time with my clients is this honest, like honest to myself about what I like and what I don't like and honest with other people about what I like and what I don't like. Are there shared values, right? Is, is this sex act happening in the overlap between what I think is happening and what you think is happening, right? It could be recreational sex. It could be procreational sex or it could be relational sex. And are we all having sex in that overlap? And then lastly, and I think the more difficult conversation is is around pleasure. Is this mutually pleasurable for me, for you, for everyone who is involved? Because mm-hmm. there are definitely folks whose sexual pleasure we don't necessarily consider, right? And I want to make certain that my clients are either asserting what they find pleasurable, but also considering the pleasure of their partners. Right. And I would imagine that you spend a lot of time there in that cultural gray area, right? Because there's mm-hmm. certainly there's kink, there's BDSM. Correct. There are things that are clearly over the line, you know, child pornography Correct. or sex with minors or mm-hmm. so how do you help people understand what those lines are? And then mm-hmm. how do you what's the intervention when like it is not okay? Yeah. So the first step is I ask my clients what is their vision of sexual health, mm-hmm. right? Because usually they're coming in, it's like, I have this sex, ad- uh, sex addiction, I have this sexual cause, can you help me stop this behavior? It's like, well, yes, but let's first start with where you're moving toward rather than what you're trying to stop. But also I find when I ask that question, I usually get these blank stares back like, what do you mean? Because no one's actually ever asked them what their vision of sexual health is, and they probably haven't even considered what does it mean what does sexual health even mean, right? So that becomes my opportunity. It's like, well, this is how I understand it. And I go through those principles just as I did with you. And then I'm like, is this something you would like to move toward? Right? This is almost my form of informed consent. It's like, this is how I'm going to construct this space. And if you agree to work with me, this is what we're going to try to align your behavior within. Mm-hmm. And then they come with a dilemma. It's like, well, I want to masturbate to this type of sexual imagery. It's like, okay, well, let's walk through it. Is that imagery consensual? Is everyone of the age of consent, like you just mentioned with child pornography? Or is everyone consenting to be recorded, right? Is this, Or is this a form of revenge porn? Or is this a webcam in a bathroom that people can't consent to? Mm-hmm. And if they're like, well, 
no. I was like, well, are you interested in addressing that question? So then my next piece is around what is your motivation for change, right? Because right. a lot of times people don't want to see themselves as perpetrating uh, sexual violence or violating someone's body integrity. Right. I was like, do you want to see yourself as that? Do you want to engage in that behavior? And so it's up to me as a therapist to kind of find where their motivation is. And sometimes it's as simply as how motivated are you to live an unincarcerated life? Because right. it might not be about their uh, care for or not wanting to harm another person, but they care about their freedom. It's like there's motivation. That's where we can start and hopefully can leverage that to move their behavior toward a particular direction that's no longer violating those, those yeah. boundaries. Where – and I know sort of attachment theory and, mm -hmm. and all of that comes to play in this. But in terms of what I guess if you were to pathologize for people who are – where there is aberrant or dangerous or harmful behavior, mm -hmm. what's the genesis for that? I mean uh, – how do we understand where that comes from? Yeah. Now that's a huge <laughs> gray area, <laughs> and and I don't think research has really wrapped their heads around it. Of uh, we understand that it's some type, I would say, some type of epigenetic reaction, right? So it's your biology is interacting with your environment in some way that then generates this type of sexual desire. For instance, like I always use this example, and so some people have what we consider a fetish toward stilettos, right? right? But it's not like there are herds of stilettos running through the plains of Africa, right? Like someone had to invent the stiletto and then someone had to like put it in front of someone and they had to have this type of reaction to it. And it's like, wow, that turns me on. But there's nothing inherent in our biology that would say stilettos are really sexy, right? <laughs> right? So there's some interaction between our biology and our environment that then generates this type of uh, interest or attraction. And is it experience? Is it like go back to sort of childhood mm -hmm. or? Um... Well, some of the working theories that I like is that there's a critical window, what we call adrenal puberty, which is right before hormonal puberty, which is like around like uh, I would say six to ten, and and this I would say is normally a little bit more around men yeah. or young boys that during that critical period, there's some exposure in the environment that might generate this type of familiarity and interest in something that's compelling. And some theories they say there's some type of activation in that moment that that person saw their fetish object, and that became something that became paired. So when they went into hormonal puberty, it was up to the person to discover, like, what turns me on? I got to find the signal from the noise because our environment is full of potential stimuli. But the signal is something that is reliably attractive to me, and my head continually turns in that direction. And after a while, I realized, wow, that that thing turns me on. That is a definite signal in this noise. And now I have to fold that into how I understand myself and my erotic orientation. Right. And that's the piece. So someone now is at this point, if they're uh, coming to hormone puberty, it's like 13, 14, 15 years old. They've already been on this earth for about 10 years integrating and absorbing all of the messages around sex and messages around who they're supposed to be sexually. And now they're discovering it's like, all right, this is how I'm supposed to be, but this is actually who I am, mm -hmm. and that creates a conflict, right? And there's a kind of internal split that they have to manage. And a lot of times that's the source of shame. Right. And they, I'm going to put this in quotes, kind of a coming out process that's similar to uh, LGB folks, where uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual folks, where they're discovering an element of their orientation that they didn't expect to have, that they were taught they weren't supposed to have, but they do have it. And what do they do about it? Right. And that can create a lot of, of angst and shame, and they have to grieve who they thought they were going to be so they can accept who they are and integrate this into their life in a way that feels healthy and pleasurable and congruent for them. So as parents, and I know that there's so much alarm around porn and how easy it is to access and for, for kids, but as a I have two boys, mm -hmm. one who's six. And it's one for you. Yeah. <laughs> but so how can you what, – what is the way of – is it just purely sort of a space holding and a allowing exploration and mm -hmm. like anything can be normal? What Do you have any advice for, for parents of, I guess, young children to mm -hmm. tweens to teens? Well, I, I, that concept of space holding, I think, is is wonderful because it's similar to what I was saying. Is like let's create a space of curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. 
And if we fill that space with shame or disgust, then it's likely going to generate some of that split and something that the, the child knows they need to defend against because the child's primary job is to stay attached to you. So anything that threatens that attachment, they're going to defend against so that they see that you're disgusted because you saw them touching their penis. They're going to create some type of defense around that. So, oh, this is, uh, this is a bad thing. I got to stop doing that thing. Mm-hmm. And however, they uh, internalize that as a six-year-old or eight-year-old, right? Because with the limited vocabulary and the concrete thinking, that's congruent with that developmental stage. So it's finding ways to, to not necessarily shame their own curiosity or their sense of pleasure while integrating your values, your mm-hmm. ethics around, for instance, like it's okay to touch yourself. It's okay to touch your penis, but that's something we do in private. You know, right. it's not something we do at the dinner table. Right. So you're starting to teach them about consent. You're starting to teach them about understanding their body and their pleasure and how to uh, appropriately explore that in a way that's safe for right. them. We have we started having those conversations and you're the only person who gets to touch your mm-hmm. penis except when we're giving you a bath and all of those. It's it's awkward, but it's it's yeah. also one of those things like – no one at school should be touching your penis. Mm-hmm. No adult should be touching your penis. And I think that's so. You're yeah. already starting the issue of uh, the values around consent, right? Mm-hmm. And that's all. And I'm assuming you're also using accurate language to talk about their bodies. So you're right. not like uh, using metaphorical language because that also, I think, subtly communicates that there's something mysterious here, or there's something that's embarrassing for me. So I may always tell you this joke is like. Sometimes clients would be like, you know, da da da, and then they went down there, and I'm like, down, down where? Are we talking about Florida? Like, I don't. They, oh, you're talking about your penis. Let's use the word penis. And so it's a way in which people uh, use metaphorical language, so they don't have to to uh, talk about something that creates embarrassment and shame. And in therapy, my job is like, no, no, no. We want to move toward the things that feel a little shame, so we can start decoupling that. Right. So if they have shame around even saying the word penis, can you imagine what it's like for them to communicate what it is that I like sexually with their partner if they can't even get that word out of their mouth? So right. how are they supposed to communicate what I like and what I don't like if they can't even say the word penis? Right. And I would imagine that that's compounding. Like you can't say penis and let's say you're into – I don't – I'm not well-versed in, no, please. in porn. But like mm-hmm. let's say they're into – BDSM or some kink and like to not even be able to I'm assuming that's why then often they go outside of a relationship correct so now you're starting to think like an OCSB therapist right it's like let's get curious about the function of this behavior so if I felt so much shame and what we know about shame defenses is like they're all about not being seen I'm assuming you've seen this with your kids where if they feel embarrassed, like they turn their head or they hide behind their parent's leg, right? these are shame defenses. Mm-hmm. And shame defenses are antithetical to intimacy where intimacy is, excuse me, here's a really catchy phrase, into me, see, right? Mm-hmm. So I want you to see these vulnerable parts of me and hopefully you'll receive them honorably. But if I feel shame, it's all about not being seen. So that goes against intimacy. But sexuality persists, right? What I find arousing will stay and will be pinging my attention. It's like, I'm still here. This is still interesting. I want to be expressed. And they find a way to to express it in a way that feels kind of the safest and like water kind of finds its level. So if I can't talk about it here with my primary partner who I'm supposed to have committed to being sexual with because I feel all this shame, I will potentially go a place where I can be secretive and furtive and unilaterally change the agreement in my relationship Mm -hmm. so I can have some type of sexual expression. And to me, what I like to tell people is like we need to respect the persistency of someone's erotic orientation, right? It does not want to be destroyed and it will defend against that and it will find its way to be expressed. So one of the reframings that I do with clients who come to me concerned about sex addiction is like your behavior may have been a problematic but a solution to prevent your erotic orientation from being completely split off or completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. And that's because primarily all of the shame that you have around it. So we can decouple that shame from your sexuality. We can hopefully now integrate it into your lifestyle, into your relationship. So you don't need to unilaterally change these agreements. You can then communicate, this is how I like my, here's the word, penis touched, right? This is how I like to experience pleasure. And it's going, it might be unconventional. However, this is what I enjoy. Right. So I would like to not 
do this in a secretive way. I like to go online and, and access communities where this feels normalized and safe. I want to be able to do this with you or my primary partner, my chosen partner. Right. In your experience, and I, and I know we're only talking about men, mm-hmm. um, is out-of-control sexual behavior, does it seem to express more in heterosexual relationships, homosexual relationships, bisexual relationships, mm-hmm. generally, like, again, where there's just erotic confusion, mm-hmm. where someone, like, doesn't even know, maybe can't articulate what they want or can't say, oh, actually, like, I want to be with a man, and I have never been able to yeah. integrate that with who I think I am or I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to get prevalence rates because there is no standardized definition of what this is, and there's so many different proposed psychiatric conditions that it's hard to understand the, the basis of that question. But it's still a great question because you just actually listed all the different poten- uh, potential functions of this behavior again. It's like, is it because someone is having difficulty with their erotic orientation? Someone's having difficulty with their sexual orientation? They're coming to terms with that I'm bisexual and I'm in a uh, other sex relationship. And what do I do with that now that I'm coming to come to this awakening? Mm-hmm. But I also want to back up. There's, there's a common ways you can see this as just a symptom of another psychiatric condition, right? So people who have an untreated or undertreated depression, sometimes they don't have that lethargy or the extinguishing of pleasure. They actually have an increase of activation. And one could argue that sex is a way to for them to feel enlivened again. Mm. So it can be a way to move them out of that isolated state and more toward people. But if they're not addressing the depression in this symptom that's more sexual gets the primary focus, we're going to miss the underlying depression that this is a symptom of, or it could be a symptom of ADHD or OCD. Mm-hmm. So there can be what we talked about earlier, kind of the function of the behavior as they're trying to uh, resolve some shame around it. But it could be that there is a psychiatric disorder that needs to be addressed, but we get distracted because the symptom is sex. Interesting. Right? We'll get back to Michael Vigorito in just a second. Some of the most interesting and compelling collaborations we've done at Goop have been the most unexpected, and I already know that Goop at Sea will fall into that category. Goop at Sea is a new wellness experience that we're doing on a, wait for it, cruise ship. It's a partnership with modern luxury brand Celebrity Cruises, and it's going down this August on board the Celebrity Apex. This ship departs from Barcelona and hits the French Riviera and the Italian Riviera over the course of 11 days. For an intimate group of guests participating in Gupetzi, the trip will also include a very cool and unique wellness journey. Midway through the trip, we'll be hosting a series of workshops and classes designed to explore mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. And surprise, Gwyneth and I will be on board for a seaside conversation, which will likely be pretty wild. This stay in the greater trip is unlike any wellness or travel experience that I could have dreamed up just a few years ago, or even a year ago. There's many more components to Goop at Sea, which I don't have time to share here, but you can learn more about the experience, the available tickets, and celebrity cruises in general if you head to celebritycruises.com slash goop at sea. Balance can be elusive. I work at finding it every day, and a lot of days I don't get it quite right. Sakara is a wellness company that was founded to explore how we can create a healthy balance in various aspects of our lives. They believe that with balance comes clarity and freedom, and that this can all begin with how we feed our bodies. Sakara believes in the ancient healing power of plants, eating vegetables that make up every color in the rainbow, selecting good fats, and paying attention to nutrient density in your body's own intelligence. Their meals are designed to nourish and support a healthy mind and body. Sakara offers an organic nutrition program that provides fresh meals, teas, and supplements. It gets delivered right to your door with no meal prep required. And you can customize your weekly schedule to best fit your lifestyle. All of their meals are organic, plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, non-GMO, and contain no refined sugar. To try Sakara's organic meals and functional supplements, head to sakara.com goop. Right now, you can get 20% off of your entire order by using code GOOP20. That's S-A-K-A-R-A and use code GOOP20. Back to my chat with Michael Vigorito. Is there an overlap in terms of 
out-of-control sexual behavior and other addictions in your experience? Like, is it just expressing all over the place or no real clear Mm -hmm. understanding? Well, this, I think, is a, a really good discussion, particularly for the recovery community, where sex is sometimes a topic that's avoided and not wanted to discuss. There's, within the 12-step world, they even encourage folks like, in the first year of recovery, you shouldn't be worried about sex and relationships. You're going to take, take a hiatus. But I'm also like, well, what if they're married? Right. <laughs> or they're supposed to like just completely disconnect? So, and there's just ways in which they want them to focus on how do we keep you from using that drug, which I think is the primary reason. But if we don't integrate this fundamental aspect of their well-being, we can miss some pitfalls, right? Because people sometimes use drugs to either amplify the pleasure of sex or they use drugs to disinhibit themselves because they have all this shame and anxiety around it in order to be sexual. Mm. Two valid, honorable desires, right? People want to feel good and want to feel pleasurable. It's like, great, how do we do that? I want more of that. Or like, I want to be sexual and I have all this shame around it. So I drink so I can be sexual, right? right? So my hope is when people have uh, substance abuse problems that they are either accessing help or talking in their recovery community around, is there a connection? Is what I call a sex drug link that's here? Because if I avoid it, if I don't think about it, I could be missing a potential trigger that will eventually lead to relapse mm-hmm. in the future or some return to use. Right. I mean, one of the groups that I run now is for gay and bisexual men who have this uh, meth-sex fusion, uh, or it's also called chem-sex. So now that they've decided, it's like, I need to stop using methamphetamine, but how do I have sober sex? I don't understand how to do this anymore. Or I've, I've never really expressed myself sexually without the presence of alcohol or GHB or methamphetamine. And so now that I've decided to stop doing this, they're almost like this adolescence of kind of recreating and exploring. So how do I do this thing? How do I have pleasurable sex in a way that does not also trigger me to return to use. And is that, is it typically that, how do those get entangled? Is it because there might have been shame around the coming out process? Mm -hmm. And so they need that, they need the meth in order to become, like, to come into their sexual selves and to become disinhibited? One of the most common functions, again, going, getting curious about the function of this behavior was, it becomes this completely liberated space mm. that I don't have to think about the shame about what I'm doing. I feel desired in a way that I, I'm too self-conscious to feel desired when I'm not high. I don't have to worry about rejection because usually everyone else in the room is high, so everyone else wants to be sexual, so I don't have to worry about it. So it's, mm. you can see how meth becomes this shame reduction strategy. Interesting. All right? Again, an honorable goal, but just a problematic solution. Right. Oh, it's so heartbreaking. I mean, and I and I feel like I, there probably is no version of a sex of a healthy sexual person in our culture. Mm-hmm. What are like for for everyone like and is there in terms of understanding that shame inadvertent or otherwise around how we're all sort of program sexually and I think for so many women there's you're dirty. Like there's so much, mm-hmm. um, particularly that's probably loaded into all of us when we're children. Absolutely. What's in, in your and in, within the the room of therapy? Like mm-hmm. what? How do you help people unpack that? Well, it's it's talk therapy, correct? Right. So I'm so attuned to the words that they use. So if they say something like dirty. I say, can we slow that down? It's like, right. can you tell me about the use of that word? What does that What does that mean to you? And so when they start to unpack what that means, then I slow it down even further. It's like, all right, what was that like to just say with me? Like, what was it like to be in your body saying these words, right? And so I can hopefully access what that activation was like for them because, again, they were probably using words so they can step over that activation and just kind of get it out and move on. Mm-hmm. And that's the exact opposite of what I want to happen in therapy. I want them to slow down. I want them to feel whatever that yeah. is so then they can realize, all right, I felt that. That wasn't so bad. I didn't get destroyed feeling that thing. Maybe there's another way of looking at this. Maybe there's another way to to address that internal reactivity that I have rather than just completely avoiding it. Because if I do that, then that can lead to different problems in the future. So it's a way that I help them access that activation and hopefully 
decouple it from those words. So yeah. the next time they say it, they don't have to use the word dirty, right? They can actually tell me what is it they mean. And they're like, oh, I'm judging myself because I enjoy this thing mm -hmm. that I called dirty or bad. And then we can evaluate that judgment, right? So I'm, I have a, a strong uh, cognitive therapy background. So my hope is I want to look at and isolate this judgment and then I have them evaluate as like, is that an accurate judgment? Is it effective? Like, is this helping you achieve your goals when you talk to yourself this way? And is it kind? Mm -hmm. And I don't usually have to defend why I think they should kind to themselves. It's like, would you tell your best friend that they're dirty when they're coming to you for help? Probably not. So why do you do that to yourself, mm -hmm. right? So when we uh, notice that something is either inaccurate, ineffective, unkind, it's like, all right, is there another way to think about this? Is there a uh, way we can reframe that judgment to something that's more accurate, effective, or kind? And do you and you bring them to where they feel that in their body, mm -hmm. and then do they sit with it? Like, do you use oh, yeah. things like EMDR? Like, do you are there ways that you sort of excavate that physical embodied experience? Yeah, it's, I I use more mindfulness based, yeah. but the EMDR I, I, I think has similar uh, interventions. So I want them to be able to identify. Uh, label and express whatever that emotion is and to sit with it, right? Understand that that is not the totality of who they are and that feelings are temporary and that they'll likely have a spike and then it will subside, mm -hmm. right? And there's also this other kitschy phrase, you know, name it to tame it. So when they can start to identify and uh, label what these emotions are, they notice like, oh, it's actually not as intense as I, I feared. And then they, hopefully in the future we can do that again and the activation won't be as intense. Right. right. So let's talk about women because I know that they're not part of your practice. Correct. And is that is that because of like sort of the, the presence of like slut shaming or this idea of nymphomania mm -hmm. or sort of the hysteria around like out of control sexual women mm -hmm. on the town? Or is that because there's so much? Sexual trauma, not that, not to belittle the amount that happens to men, but sure. probably almost every woman has had some sort of sexual trauma, mm -hmm. whether as a child or an adult. Yeah. I know the rates are staggering, and I don't know that we'll ever know. Mm -hmm. But what what is it? Why why are women different? Well, there's a pragmatic answer to your first question of why I work primarily with men. Is those are primarily the folks that are calling me, right? right. And I felt like I need to stay in my lane. I'm, I, uh, my expertise is in primarily male sexuality. And I don't want to make the assumption that because I know a lot about male sexuality, then I know enough about female sexuality that I will be an effective clinician. Mm -hmm. So my invitation to the field is always, if people want to work with female sexuality for out-of-control sexuality, please do that. I, I can't do it all. I'm only one clinician, right? <laughs> uh, and male sexuality is, is complicated enough right. uh, to then also incorporate female sexuality. And I want to also go back to what you're talking about, race, right? What, if, if you're familiar with the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, mm -hmm. and that talked about one out of four girls, but also one out of six boys experienced some type of childhood sexual abuse before the age of 18. And also only about 86% of them reported that to a person of authority. So to echo what you're saying, those are staggering mm -hmm. numbers, right? But I also want to understand how context and how society is influencing female sexuality is likely going to be different than for men. So I do encourage people who, who are women who feel out of control to find a clinician who has that experience and who feels more versed and be able to talk about that with them. And I don't know if that's because you know men feel comfortable with another man, so they come to see me. So if women will feel comfortable talking with another one who kind of inherently knows about the pressures of being a fully realized sexual woman would be more comfortable and aligned with what they're hoping for. Right. Oh, that makes sense. But it also seems, too, that this behavior, and this is completely just my perspective and mm -hmm. not any, but it seems like the sex addiction label is more, much more typically applied to men and that women are just sluts. Or women are love addicts. Interesting. So yeah. the, it's also another way of desexualizing women and just focusing on, as, oh, they're just uh, another way of saying they're, oh, it's just too codependent. Like right. They're just attached too fast and too deeply and too emotional and they're love addicts. And it's like, 
Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it just makes me cringe. And two, I think what you're saying is like in the kind of the lexicon for female sexuality, like what are the options, right? right. It's like it's slut or they're promiscuous. These these terms that overly pathologize people who have kind of what we call higher rates of partner change. And again, moving out of that act-centered value system, it's like I don't know what the the healthy amount of sex partners is. That's a completely arbitrary number. So I want to move it over to an ethical framework. It's like, is this aligned with my values? Is this pleasurable for me? Is this consensual? Are you being honest about what you like and don't like? And I find that if we empower clients with a set of ethics, that they can make good responsible choices right. that consider their own pleasure and the pleasure of other people and hopefully reduce harm and move them toward right. health and well-being. Yeah, no, it's so funny that that health number of sex partners is such a I don't know if if that's something that's part of the conversation for men, but certainly, mm-hmm. you know, with in high school and college that was you knew your number. I mean, it was mortifying when you were like, I don't actually mm-hmm. know or I can't quite remember. Yeah. And there was this idea that if you – like for me and, and my friend group, it seemed to be 10. Mm. And I remember asking my husband and he was like, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no idea. Yeah, Certainly not 10. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're like about that number 10, right? Because you can see the tension. Like they're like, oh, I don't want to be too much because I'll be kind of a slut, but I don't want to be not enough because right. then I'll be called prude. So I have to find this happy medium where I'm just like this balanced, healthy sexual person. Yes. No. And I, you know, I had a friend in college who was a, a virgin and an unwilling one, but it became such a thing, right? Because it's just, that's another, that's a whole nother thing yeah. for women and I know I think that there are staggering rates about how many women lose their virginity sort of unwillingly as well. Mm-hmm. And for men, they don't, they're not looking for that, that middle road between prude and slut, right? It's just right. as long as I am not a virgin, no amount of numbers will make me feel shame, right? It's like right. I just have to get off of, of that spot and then be okay. Right. And they, the, a lot of times I've heard men really struggle with if the – their female partner's number is more than theirs. Like, what does that mean about me? And they they take it as an affront or this emasculating moment. Right. It's like, oh my god, my partner has more sex partners than I do. What do I? How do I handle that? I'm less of a man there. It's like, let's slow that down. Right. <laughs> and let's get curious about how you came to that conclusion. Right. And then, meanwhile, this idea of of a woman having a ton of different um, sex partners is also obviously frowned upon and Mm -hmm. although I do think this might be silly but like I think about a show like Sex and the City Mm -hmm. and I'm like that I think was probably really good for women to watch someone like Samantha versus a Charlotte Mm -hmm. and to sort of like have those things just played out so explicitly and to as the the way that women tended to identify themselves and those characters but yeah it's it's such a silly conversation I'm I'm always curious if that's still something that happens and the people are still tracking. Mm-hmm. Well, and and my hope with my clients is is I want to promote their autonomy, right? Like if you're more Charlotte or Samantha, that is fine <laughs> as long as that's what feels consistent with you are and, and you feel empowered by that and you're making choices that are based on your values and what you find pleasurable, fantastic, right? right. But part of, I think you said holding space, right, is Holding space for someone's autonomy so they can feel like they're making choices that feel pleasurable for them and align with their values. You can't unlearn what you've learned, right? Right. So let's first just get a sense of like what is this disclosure statement a solution to? Like what are we trying to do here with this? Right. And a lot of times it's like, well, I want to be able to trust. I want to be able to feel more secure uh, in this relationship. I was like, all right, part of this is trying to help you heal from that feeling of betrayal? And do we think that this is going to help you do that? Or is this going to just provide you more reason to kind of to be to be activated and not have solid ground to stand on when you are in these moments of feeling insecure? There might be just other things that we can do around your communicating, for instance, in these moments of activation that I feel wounded, I feel betrayed. Yeah. And what are you asking of your partner? A lot of times what I say is like, well, let's step back. It's A lot of times it's around validation and looking for empathy. Right. right? I want to validate that, yes, 
I, this uh, was an injury. This makes sense to me. How you just outlined it, I would imagine you must be feeling angry, disappointed in me, maybe fear around this. Like, so you, you can walk them through this process of kind of holding it and seeing if that first helps, right, yeah. before excavating everything that's ever been done uh, in this relationship. Yeah. That seems so cruel yeah. in its own way to both parties. And it's sometimes it happens sometimes like in the beginning of, of treatment when he is feeling desperate to save this relationship and I'm gonna gender this and she is feeling kind of the most wounded and injured. And so they're not thinking critically about like how do we heal this relationship. So they're relying on the clinician to guide them through this process. And a lot of times you hear me say this a lot. Let's slow this down right? and let's see what we can do in this moment right now because you're activated, you're feeling this betrayal wound. I suspect you want some validation and some empathy. So let's go through like if you are familiar with Imago therapy, let's go through a couple's dialogue so we can kind of validate what's happening, create the space for curiosity and have an intimate communication, right? So again, into me, see. It's like you, you see my wound, you see my hurt and person handles that with honor and care, validates and empathizes, right? And we can, let's do that repeatedly to see what we need. And then if there's still something that doesn't make sense to you, maybe we can can consider kind of a a disclosure around that piece to kind of help you reconstruct the narrative of this marriage, right? Because I think part of what that disorientation is, is that this person is now looking back to 10 years, like, oh my God, there were things that were happening behind the scenes I was not aware of. So like when we were on vacation in Disney World, you were texting with a sex partner. I didn't know that was happening then. And so they have to kind of rewrite that narrative. And that's a grief process, right? This is what I thought my relationship was. And now I have to integrate this new information and go through this process of acceptance. Yeah. And so that's not necessarily particularly constructive. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And again, go back to there's no research around this is a helpful intervention. Yeah. Right? There's sometimes it feels intuitively correct. Like I want to know everything. I want to know all that I've done. So then once I have all this information, then I can try to integrate this into my head. It's like, yeah. And I've also seen people once they learn everything, like it's they're overwhelmed. They're flooded. Yeah. Flooding is never – in. Um, a psychotherapeutic intervention, right? If you think about it from a trauma perspective, we're trying to help people not be flooded, right? right? We're trying to help them develop some confidence in regulating their activation. And once you're flooded, you're not going to be able to have intimate communications. You're going right. to be disoriented. We, I do a lot of grounding exercises with my clients to avoid that particular event, right? So here we're moving into directly into an intervention that will likely generate a flooding and overwhelm. And I don't find that to be necessarily recommended. And it seems like it would be helpful. Like I would imagine one of the reasons that disclosure intuitively feels like the right thing to do is that you don't want to repair your relationship and then in two years find out, oh, and there was more? Like you you slept with my best friend? So I would imagine that it's like an opportunity to be like, here are the types of things maybe without – all the, like, on your birthday, like, this whole thing happened and Mm -hmm. you were unaware. Yeah, I would imagine the, yeah, gratuitous details are not helpful. Mm -mm. What gets tricky is that there are also personality structures like narcissism or antisocial where people can really exploit and take advantage of their partner. Mm. So there's a, a smaller portion of the population that the clinicians need to be aware of. So if you're dealing with someone who has some of those antisocial qualities or narcissist qualities, this might not be a, a relationship that has longevity, right? Because they're going to continually hurt their other partner. And sometimes that's also hard for that wounded partner to figure out. It's like, is this behavior actually going to change or is this part of their personality that they're going to recreate this relationship drama again in a couple years and do I want to go through that? Mm-hmm. And that can be such a hard place to be and something that's really difficult for therapists to kind of ascertain or disentangle. Oh, it's so messy, but it is important work. Yeah. And what I would say is a disclosure statement is not necessarily going to help them determine if this person is truly narcissistic 
or right. antisocial. You know, they just have to see is like, does this person create this type of relationship drama around them? Because personalities are persistent and insistent, right? And they will dishonor agreements around them, not just with that partner. So you can start to see, it's like, oh, this is truly a pattern. And if that's the case, is the treatment that you were receiving aligned with that diagnosis or that clinical picture? You know, there's a uh, intervention called dialectical behavioral therapy that is great for personality disorders. Or if you're dealing with someone who has narcissism, is their clinician aware of that piece and addressing that head on? And is the client motivated to make those changes? Right? Right. If they're not, that's typically your answer. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Michael Vigorito. For more on Michael's work and his workshops, head to michaelvigorito.com. That's V-I-G-O-R-I-T-O. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. Do you put effort into teaching your children about financial literacy? Do you think your children understand that most kids their age don't have the things, opportunities, lifestyle that they have? Yes, absolutely. I think yes to both. I do put a lot of effort into teaching my children about financial literacy and understanding, trying to implement an understanding that, you know, they are going to be responsible for their lives. I think it is challenging, not only because they come from an affluent background, but for all of us, we are raising children in a generation of this kind of consciousness that we want to give them everything and, you know, take their pain away. And, and so I think there's an energetic component to this. And I think there's a fiscal component to this. I always try to, since they were even little, tried to implement ways that they can earn things. I've been, you know, of course, very focused on them you know, trying to raise kids who will turn into adults who understand work ethic and what that means. My daughter has a job in retail that she went out and got herself. And she's an incredibly diligent worker. And I'm extremely proud of her. She really does understand the value of a dollar. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.